What I propose, since I usually speak too long, is nonetheless to follow the steps of our good friend Giorgio Agamben, and I also decided to be as boring as possible. <laughs> that is to say, I want to do some solid job. I want to avoid as much as possible my usual mistake of just jumping here and there and do what? Uh, some of you know, some of you know that in his seminar 17, Lambert de la Psychanalyse, the other side, the obverse of psychoanalysis, Jacques Lacan from 1969-70, Jacques Lacan developed the so-called matrix scheme of four discourses. I want to proceed simply in two steps. First, to explain in very simple terms, to give a kind of a systematic account, without bothering with two big methodological questions, how is he right and so on, just to give you an idea of how this works, and then, more crucial, in part two, the more substantial part, to see how the focus of this theory, which is the passage from the discourse of master to the discourse of university, how it can serve as a conceptual tool to grasp what is going on today, the new forms of authority, inclusive of what it was already said here about uh, states of exception and so on and all that. Okay, so if you will excuse me for the first half, which will be a little bit more boring than maybe some of you expect. So, Lambert de la Psychanalyse, this seminar of Lacan, this is the first thing to remember. Is Lacan's response to the events of 68. The premise of this seminar is best captured by Lacan's reversal of the well-known anti-structuralist graffiti from the Paris walls of 68, Les structures ne descendent pas dans la rue. The, the structures do not walk on the streets. The idea being structuralist abstract things, now the real think nothing to do. <clears throat> I think that Lacan said this first in a meeting of the French Society of Philosophy, apropos where Michel Foucault presented a talk, what is author, and in a discussion Lacan emphatically claimed that if there is anything that the events of 68 prove is that precisely structures in the structuralist, so-called structural sense, do walk along the streets. In other words, that you can account for what occurred in 68 for this kind of outburst in terms of the structural changes, permutations, and so on, and so on. Uh, for Lacan, the key to this event, and I, I don't even agree with Lacan's account of it, but his interest is focused on, as I already said, on the passage. This is the key passage. From discourse of the masters to the master to the discourse of university, which is why for Lacan it is crucial for him. No wonder that the revolt of 68 was located at the universities. As such, for Lacan, this revolt only signaled the shift to new forms of domination in which the scientific discourse sir, uh, legitimizes new relations of domination. I think that Lacan's underlying premise here is, this is at least one aspect of it, and here I'm critical of Lacan, skeptic conservative. His diagnosis you know, underlying this is an attitude which I oppose very much, this enlightened conservative attitude of, yeah, yeah, revolutionary explosion is good, but the day after domination turns in a new, maybe even more oppressive form. This diagnosis of Lacan is best captured by his famous retort to the student revolutionaries, where he says, as hysterics, you are asking for, you demand a new master, you will get one. This passage of discourse of master, let's simplify the traditional uh, discourse of power to the discourse of university can also be conceived in more general terms generally as the passage from the pre-revolutionary ancien regime to the post-revolutionary new master who does not want to admit that he is one but proposes 
presents himself as a mere servant of the people. In Nietzsche's terms, it is the passage from master's ethics to slave morality. And this, perhaps, enables us a new approach to Nietzsche. When Nietzsche scornfully dismisses slave morality, I think that Nietzsche can be redeemed here, that he is not truly attacking lower, so-called lower classes as such, but rather the new masters who are no longer ready to assume the title of the master. I think if you read closely Nietzsche, slave is not the true slave. Slave is this fake new master who doesn't even want to be master, who is not ready to assume directly the position of the master. So let me do now, do now a little bit of this elementary pedagogy. The starting point of this so-called matrix of the four discourses is Lacan's well-known so-called definition. I say so-called not to criticize Lacan because it's obviously structural, sorry, circular, in the sense of that the term to be defined is, this is conscious, Lacan's paradox is included in the what is supposed to define him. A signifier is that which represents the subject for another signifier. So how are we to read this obviously circular definition? I'm sorry for those of you who know Lacan, I'm sure at least some of you, at least those of you, I will not say who, but whose name begins with A and family name with B, like that. <laughs> maybe you know even more Lacan, so I'm sorry for those. No, to listen please, but uh, the, this definition is to be conceived in opposition, it's meant as a reversal, opposition of the standard definition of sign. Sign is that which represents something for somebody. So what would this mean? Let me give you two, three very elementary examples. For example, the old-style hospital bed, now it's more digitalized, but I always admire them. You know how you lie here and at the feet you have, so that of course you as a patient, you don't see it. You have this mysterious, uh, uh, how do you call it, board with, you know, temperature up and down, what medicine and so on and so on and so on. I think it's, okay, this represents you, the patient, no? Your state, your changes, temperature, blah, blah, what, uh, uh, what uh, medicines are you taking, but it represents you for whom? Now you would say, oh, but it's for another subject, obviously. It is simply for the stupid uh, doctor or the usually not so stupid nurses who come there to read it. No, I claim that that's not necessary. It can even happen, ideally. A person is not needed there. It would be even more ideal that that would be just then Instead of being there, displayed for a human gaze, it could have been uh, simply directly connected to a computer in the sense of another chain of knowledge. It's literally, it presents you for the chain of medical knowledge. It is to be uh, inscribed into uh, medical knowledge. Or to give you even a more radical example, and at the same time simpler, of this uh, signifier represent the subject for another signifier, uh, the symptom standard, good old-fashioned, they no longer made them today as they did in the good old days, hysterical conversion, hysteria, where, okay, we all know the symptom is a ciphered message, but to whom? Definitely not to another human being, because nobody, not even you, uh, don't, that nobody really understands it. Uh, but nonetheless, it, a symptom accomplishes its function the moment it is produced, since it is inscribed into the big other, you know, it's put into circulation. Uh, so, based on this, Lacan produced the following scheme. A subject is represented by a signifier, the one which is your standing within the field of within the symbolic order. Uh, so something, let's say your name or whatever, usually it's not even your name, stands for you, represents you in the symbolic order. And this is the ABC of Lacanian theory, I'm giving you a watered-down version, this representation, signifying symbolic representation, always structurally fails and the failure, this failure, as it were, is embodied in what Lacan calls l'objectita, the object cause of desire. It's precisely that which remains, the leftover, the excess, that which is not caught 
in the logic of symbolic representation. Now, this is the starting point. Then what Lacan does is to further elaborate this scheme. In what terms? First, Lacan calls these four places this agent, truth, other production. That is to say, the agent is, to put it in very simple terms, the, and simplified to the utmost, the apparent, obvious, the agent simply of the discourse, the position of enunciation, the position from which the discourse is spoken. You can speak as a master, later we'll see. You can speak as a split hysterical subject. The master is the one who, in pure performativity, knows what he says, says what he knows, directly stated. You can speak from the position of knowledge, university discourse, where you just state what's going on without subjective engagement, and you can speak from the position of the analyst, which is this one, that is to say, you speak precisely from the position of the impossible uh, remainder, excess, that which resists being included into the symbolic network. So the concept here then is a very simple one. We have first this zero-level discourse, and you know, now today it's still, although the word is already a little bit out of fashion, it's still fashionable to use the word discourse, like just out of snobbery often. Like instead of saying, let's analyze, I don't know, the last speech by George Bush, it sounds much deeper if you say the, the discourse of George Bush, no? Lacan is not responsible for this. For him, discourse means le lien social, social link. It's the minimum, minimal scheme of social link. Uh, so, uh, again, it's at the, apart, again, at the level of you can even put it in these terms, enunciated enunciation. Uh, it, let's call it naively, apparent level, level of appearances, not apparent, sorry, it's the distinction. Uh, and then, so, after doing, after establishing this scheme, Lacan does the following. His idea is then that this is, of course, the elementary operation, the zero-level discourse, as it were, the first gesture. Simply, a signifier represents you, represents you, there is a remainder. And then, for Lacan, there are three variations of these three possible <coughs> ways to, as it were, react to the deadlock of this discourse. These are, and you arrive at them by simply in a clockwise way, turning around for one quarter each time the terms uh, in these four places. So you get master's discourse, university discourse, hysterical discourse, the discourse of the analyst. Uh, okay, that's the zero level. But now, this means nothing, of course, the way I put it now. So let's go step by step. First, the master's discourse. Uh, the discourse of the master is, for Lacan, the basic one. It provides, as it were, the basic matrix. As already said, a subject is represented by the signifier for another signifier, or for the chain of the signifiers. Uh, Lacan calls S1, the one, the master signifier S2 is not simply another signifier, but rather the chain, the of signifiers, he refers to it as knowledge. Knowledge as opposed to pure tautological master's gesture. And then we have, as already said, since this symbolic representation structurally fails, the remainder, the object, what Lacan calls l'objectit A, the object small a. Here already uh, we find the first tension. Usually, incidentally, why is this? this uh, line curved. It signals to simplify to the utmost that things do not quite function, how to put it, that here trouble emerges. So, uh, uh, Lacan's point, to put it very simply, is the following one. In the master's discourse, we have this master's gesture, the big, the one signifier, which introduces order or whatever, tries to be, uh, tries to organize the field of knowledge. It fails, and this, you should also remember, this is for Lacan also the, this uh, confrontation or like, like a coupling of the subject with object, in the sense of object cause of desire, is for Lacan also 
the formula of fantasy. So, uh, the point is here very convincing and simple for Lacan. You, let's put it in extremely ridiculously and simplified terms, you make a statement produce the one for the field of knowledge. You say something. But for Lacan, there is always a gap between what you say and what Lacan calls the position of enunciation, what you wanted to say by saying this. For Lacan, the most elementary gap of meaning is always in best, is best encapsulated in this question, okay, you are telling me this, but why are you telling me this? And this gap, for Lacan, let me give you, I improvise already in my class, I want to elaborate it now a little bit further. <clears throat> for example, the best, since we are here in academia, I cannot resist from giving you the example of this gap between enunciated enunciation from the standard rules of academic discourse. Let us say that after this very talk here, I will approach full of hope with this idiotic naivety some of you and ask you, how did you like my talk? Let's say that you will think oh, it was boring, stupid. But you know that in academic discourse, you are not supposed to answer like this. And as you also probably know, it's strictly codified how you answer. You say, oh, it was interesting, no? That's the academic way to say it was stupid and boring, polite one, you know? Okay, so now a naive idiot would have said, but okay, why not say directly? So what if you were to tell me it was boring and stupid? I claim that in this way, the message would not be simply it was boring and stupid. The rules are, if you want to tell me it was boring and stupid, without the excessive surplus message smothered into it, that because you are an idiot, without targeting me as a person, you can only say it was, it was interesting. If you want to test, uh, like, because if you tell me it was boring and stupid, meaning just this, that it was really boring and stupid, then you should say it was interesting. In other words, in, in that case, I have the full right to tell you, listen, if you meant that, if you really just meant that it's boring and stupid, why didn't you simply tell me that it's interesting? Why did you? You, you, you got it. You, an, an, an enunciated statement never coincides with itself. You have always this more. And Lacan's point is the following one, that the structural role of fantasy is precisely to provide a fantasized answer to this more, to this, you tell me, you told me that, but why are you telling me this? It's fantasy. In the ship, for example, I don't know, uh, 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 at the most let's take the ultimate example of ideology, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is precisely the answer to this non-transparency of the social body. It's like this, blah, blah, but why? What's really, what's going on? Anti-Semitic, anti sorry, uh, Jewish plot, and so on and so on. So again, fantasy fills in for, or if you want, uh, provides an answer to this primordial, as Lacan puts it, referring to terms of an old novel where the works are in Italian, uh, to this cavoy, what, what do you want? And the in we can also read this discourse in another way, which maybe will make, you, will make it more plastic. Uh, these two levels, a very primitive example, but I was told by some psychologist that it's true. Let's say you are a high-level executive. You give orders and so on, and fortunately, in order to survive, you need to go once a week to a prostitute to whip you. You know this famous story, which I heard it's even true, that the more you are in command, the more you need some fantasy realized in the sense of masochistic ritual which sustains you, and so on and so on. Another philosophical... Uh, so, again, sorry, Lacan's point here is that, again, the explicit social link has to be sustained with fantasies. <clears throat> Another crucial point here is, but I don't have time to develop it now, it's that uh, one way to conceive Lacan's revolution is as writing a fourth critique of Kant. As you know, in Kant we have three critiques, 
purism, practicalism, judgment, urteilskraft. For, but for, for Kant, as he explicitly emphasized, the faculty of desiring is inherently pathological. Pathological in the sense of uh, being uh, of, of being always linked to contingent uh, worldly empirical object. There is no, as, the, as Kant puts it, there is no pure faculty of desiring. Faculty, so desiring is as such pathological. But for Lacan, psychoanalysis precisely is a kind of critique of pure desire. That is to say, for Lacan, there is a pure non-pathological, a priori, proto-transcendental object cause of desire. And this precisely is the object smolle, which is kind of a, again, a transcendental element, a priori element in the logic of desire. Now, let's go a step further here. How do these two operate, S1, S2? Now, uh, it's not only that they are heterogeneous, they are heterogeneous in a very specific way. The first mistake to avoid here is to confuse them with any of these old, uh, how do you call them, uh, polar opposite, Bionic, ba, sorry, binary couples, you know, like, I don't know, masculine, feminine, yin, yang, or whatever, positive, negative. Uh, Lacan's theory is here much nicer. It is that, uh, how to put it, in a way, it's a kind of a circular mechanism where each stands in for the other's leg. They are not structurally at the same level. S1 enters to fill in the lack of S2 and vice versa. What do we mean by this? Let me first give you the first example. Let's say that this is the phallic, as Lacan sometimes put it, masculine signifier. For Lacan, when he says woman doesn't exist, he precisely means that there is no feminine counterpoint to the masculine phallic signifier, which incidentally is for me the ultimate uh, uh, argument for feminism, but that's another story. What I want to tell you only is that this standard accusation then, you know, so fashionable in so-called postmodern deconstructionism of uh, binary logic, Lacan, bi no, Lacan I think is the most radical undermining of binary logic. For Lacan, what he calls primordial repression. Is, as he puts it, the, the repression, the lack, the void of the binary signifier. Like you have only one and then the counterpoint that would introduce, like you have, how to put it, yin without yang or whichever way you put it. And on the place of this lack, the multitude then emerges. So Lacan has a very nice abstract, even philosophical, or what it was called 20 years ago, 40 years ago, logic of the signifier, level of how multitude emerges. You have the one, and here I think there are some legitimate links, but I'm proceeding very fast, between all this relation and what Alain Badiou was explaining to you with all these uh, formulas. That is to say how the minimum the minimal matrix of this tension is that, of course, of empty set. That is to say that the radical difference is not primordially a difference between an element and another element, but how to put it, a pure difference between an element at its own place, an element as it, and, and its own void. And then, uh, 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 this minimal gap Already in German idealism, even I think in medieval logic, they call it symbolic reduplicatio, that the moment we are in the order of science, you have always a minimal gap between an element at its place. And to fill in this gap, you need the S2. Now, sorry if I repeat all jokes from my talk, but they are worth repeating here. The best example I could think about this is uh, the, the stupid, but I love it. You know, Woody Allen film, the parody on Tolstoy, uh, Not War and Peace, it's called War and Love, which is about Tolstoy. Throughout the entire movie, Tolstoy, Tolstoy, Tolstoy. Now, every normal Western subject has here, okay, where is Dostoevsky? No Dostoevsky, uh, but that's the nicety. So Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, this one is missing. But what you get instead of this, 
is an exploding multitude. In one of the, in a wonderful scene of the film, the two main characters get involved in a conversation where all the Dostoevsky titles are condensed. Like, uh, have you seen the idiot? I mean the Karamazov brother. He got the punishment for it, then he went underground, he was too furious. You know, like, all the titles. It's like, you know, the binary signifier is missing, you get, you get the explosion. So, again, this is, I think, I don't have time to work on it more, but an extremely important point that this imbalance, they are not, this is not, this is not the same field, you know. The, or, the original tension is not S1, S2. It is even, if I put it this way, because one of the Lacanian names of, of this lab is subject. It is signifier represents the subject, but then this, you have the tension between 1 and 0, and to fill in this 0, it's a, you get S2. It's even a very Hegelian theory of how the first contradiction is purely tautological, contradiction inherent to the 1 itself, and then as a, an attempt to fill in this gap, you get the multitude, the explosion. But we can also generate this tension from, a, from the other side, that the S2, the chain, is never complete, and in order to complete the chain, you have to have an excessive element, which appears to be one of the elements of the chain, but to use this fashionable uh, uh, expression, which one is almost uh, ashamed to use it today, uh, feels which is signifier of the lack of the signifier. That is to say, it appears to be a positive signifier, but just feels in the lack. Okay, just to give you a couple of old examples, which are probably even known to you. Uh, for example, even with Marx, let me be a little bit critical of Marx. You know that in Marx you get in his Grundrisse a certain categorization, a series of so-called mode of production. We have this, the so-called whatever, primitive, pre-class society, whatever mode of production. You have Asiatic mode of production, so-called oriental despotism. You have slave, ancient Greek, slave mode of production, feudal, capitalist, and whatever comes afterwards, socialism or whatever. Okay, now, uh, but if you look at it closely, it is clear how Marx arrived at the Asiatic mode of production. That what appears to be just one mode in the series was really generated in a different way. It was that, to cut a long story short, Marx, the original categorization was just uh, the one which was incidentally later established, uh, codified by Stalinism, which is why Stalin, Stalinists always rejected the notion of Asiatic mode. It was uh, uh, primitive tribal societies, uh, simply slave, feudalism, capitalism, communism. Then Marx encountered a whole series of totally heterogeneous, ultimately, modes of Okay, not concept modes of production, but let's say productive organization, since which did not fit any of these modes. And while the Asiatic mode of production appears to be a positive term at the same level of others, it is really like, you know, that famous uh, passage from Borges quoted by Foucault, how the list includes all. It's basically a container for all those modes which do not fit the official category. So you got the point. Apparently we had a complete list, but which includes everything, but in order to have it, we need to include an element which appears deceivingly as one in the series, but, but it is effectively a stand-in. Le tenon lieu, as they put it, it sounds better in French, the, the placeholder within the system of what escapes of what, of that which the system, based on its structuring principle, cannot grasp. We have the same, for example, I don't know, this is the Spinoza, Spinozian, Spinoza's classical, uh, classical criticism of uh, the traditional notion of God as the one up there and so on. That it's simply that the entire positive content of the notion of God is the lack of our knowledge. We know things then, we, when we don't know it, we call that God. So, okay, we may agree, disagree with it, but the point is simply that an element which appears as a positive term in itself is just 
just gives body to the luck. You have, you have here numerous other examples, like for example in physics, floppy stone, floppy stone. You know, it appears to be to name a positive physical element, but it simply objectivizes the failure, the lack of knowledge. Uh, so, to conclude, uh, the lesson here is that there is no reason to be dismissive of the discourse of the master. You know, it has nothing to do with, yeah, yeah, bad master, authoritarian repression, or whatever. The, the master's gesture is the founding gesture of every social link. You know what would be uh, the best example, maybe, of the master's gesture? Imagine a situation of confusion like a certain social order is disintegrated also, its ideology. So you don't know where you stand. I mean, there is no, as we put it today in fashionable terms, uh, global narrative which allows you... And then, at that point, you have ideological struggle for new hegemony. And at that point, you get a new term when somebody pronounces the right word, which is usually an, even an empty word, but... It's as if, how should I put it, the word is pronounced and there is a new order. My favorite example, I'm sorry to insist on it, but because it's simply the most plastic, would be, let's say, Germany in the late 20s. We have, uh, we have so-called moral decadence, economic crisis, of course, uh, whatever you want, German humiliation, and what, I mean, people were simply large amounts of people disoriented and for Hitler's product, Jew was you know, like, you are confused, then Hitler says Jew, Jewish law, aha things are clear, the new narrative that's the basic idea of the that's the basic idea, if you want, uh, if you want of, the, of the master discourse. It's not a whole new... The point, you learn nothing new. It's just a new rearticulation, which all of a sudden makes things uh, transparent. That's the master's discourse. But again, you need emphasis to sustain it because of its failure and so on and so on. Now, let's go slowly on. What happens then if we make... One, shift water, that is to say the university discourse. In the university discourse, as you see, the position of the agent is neutral knowledge. It's knowledge. This knowledge is addressed precisely to that remainder. So you see the nice logic of Lacan. This object, small a, was the excess of the master's discourse. When that fails, ah, the idea is, of course, let's account for that one. Let's focus our knowledge on that one. But you remember, I, I brought on the other side, that's the agent and this is the truth. So already you can see what's Lacan's point. It is that the truth of the university discourse, which the best naive example today would be the expert discourse, is that it's a disavowed uh, master's discourse. What what does this mean? And of course, as such, it produces subjectivity. How are we to read this? Uh, let me give you first one example, which I think, from our daily experience even, which I think perfectly renders this shift, imperceptible shift between university discourse and master's discourse. Uh, the medical discourse. The paradox of the medical discourse is that and an old, rather conservative Lacanian wrote nonetheless 20 years ago a nice book, Jean Claver, called L'Ordre Medical, where he argued this, I think, that at this level he was right, namely that uh, university, sorry, the medical discourse is precisely the paradox of a discourse which appears to be purely scientific, university, although that's another story. For Lacan, science does not have the structure of university discourse. It's another, nonetheless, it's not. But the point is that which still functions as master's discourse. You know how you can detect this? You are horrified if a doctor simply treats you as an object. There is always, with the figure of a doctor, this mystical access. You know, like, it's not just knowledge. The doctor has to understand you has to have some special insight. The horror is that a doctor, your, I mean, medical doctor, should not be reduced to simple, that, you know, medicine, as they like to put it, medicine demands also a deep understanding of the person. Med medicine should not be simply 
science. But, okay, uh, a, a more classical example, if you want it, of the master, of the, sorry, of how master, the position of the master is the truth of the university discourse would be, well, take a, a, a political example, would be today's economists, market experts, who advocate strong budgetary measures, cut welfare and so on, as a necessity imposed by his, the experts, neutral expertise, devoid of any ideological biases. This, this is a thing, you know, what they don't admit is that in order for this budget measure, that they are really not neutral, that in order for economy to function the way they describe it, there are certain power relations already. It's kind of a disavowed power, disavowed dimension of power. That is to say, this is, if you want, the basic cheating of the university discourse. It presents itself as a simple, objective, neutral knowledge, but you have the, it is as if you know, you are not even a subject for me, I just treat you as, as an object, that's the truth of the things, but nonetheless, its truth is that still uh, you are confronted with this disavowed dimension of the master. Then let's go on. Next change the other way to undermine or to change the, to step out of the position of the, uh, sorry, of the master's discourse is what Lacan calls hysterical discourse. Here also the, the matrix works perfectly because his, this is what defines hysteria for Lacan. Hysteria is the subject, the split subject provoking the master. In what way? Tell me what the hysteric does addresses the master provoking him, I want you to produce knowledge about what I am as the cause of desire, as object. That is to say, to put it in very naive terms, let's take a king. What would be? The model would be Shakespeare, Richard the, the second probably. The moment you no longer accept with full naivety of the master, I am a king. But you know, the moment you get caught into this, am I really the king? Why am I a king? Uh, what, uh, this, at this point, hysterization begins, and again you address the figure of the master, tell me, let me know what I am. Here we have already a very nice point of Lacanian theory which should be kept in mind, which is that uh, for Lacan, uh, you know, all this poetry, yeah, the object of desire is originally lost and so on, but for Lacan, the lost object of desire, is ultimately not out there what I desire, it is rather me, myself, as an object. That is to say, the enigma is the following one. Imagine, imagine a small child, he knows that, or she, that for parents, brothers, sisters, he's an object of libidinal investment. But, you know, the primordial enigma is why? What do they see in me? What kind of, oh, this is for Lacan the primordial enigma, what kind of an object I am? If that idiot says he, she loves me, I love you, why? What does he see in me? This inexplicable excess in me. Or to put it in, a, uh, to put it in another way, if the master gives you your social symbolic ideological identity, the classical example, you are my wife. Then the hysterical question is, but what do you see in me that I am your wife? Why am I your wife? You know, this questioning, which is why for Lacan there is a hysterical aspect of every, uh, uh, of every revolutionary explosion and so on and so on. Then, this is the analyst discourse, which is strangely similar to, uh, to of course, to, uh, to hysterical discourse. Uh, no, sorry, to the discourse of perversion. Because this is also Lacan's formula of perversion. What does Lacan mean by this? Perversion is truly a contrast, the opposite of hysteria. In the, the minimal definition of hysteria is questioning. You question your symbolic identity. You question what is the object in me which makes me what I am. Which is why in my first book already I focus on a wonderful painting I think on, I see, I think of one of the pre-Raphaelites, when, which angel brought to Virgin Mary the news that she's pregnant, Gabriel, I think, yeah. And it's a wonderful painting because the Virgin Mary is 
totally perplexed, you know, like, you are saying this, but shit, what did I do? It's like, why? What? I know, you know, this, like, you are informing me that that's my historical role. Why? What did I do? And I think even the movie, which I otherwise don't like, because I don't like Martin Scorsese, but nonetheless, the idea is not bad. He's the last temptation of Christ. The beauty of it is that it's this kind of historicization of Christ. Christ doesn't, what's happening? Why do I have these miracles? Why am I God? No, Christ cannot accept this identity. Okay, but in contrast to this hysterical doubt, the, which is why I love them, the pervert subject for Lacan is not simply, no, perversion is for Lacan a formal symbolic, I don't like the word structure, but okay, structure. It has nothing to do with, oh my God, what horrible things you are doing, no. Uh, it, in the sense that a pervert precisely does not have any questions, he knows. The pervert position is, I know perfectly what you, the subject, need and I will do it for you. You know, you want to be whipped, you want to be tortured, whatever, no? That's, uh, uh, it, uh, the, the pervert position is, Precisely this kind of uh, this kind of uh, total self-instrumentalization, which is why I think that the classical Stalinism was a pervert discourse. Not because oh my God, what horrible things they were doing, but because if you read Stalinist, uh, and I, but on the other hand, I think that uh, fascism was a perverted, a kind of a fake attempt to return to the discourse of the master. Because Stalin is definitely not, you totally miss it, although privately Stalin was usually, ironically, uh, uh, addressed as master. No, I don't know, but the nickname for Stalin in the inner circle around him was Khazyayin, which is the Russian word for master, no? But the structure of this work, in what sense? Uh, if you read the Stalin, great Stalinist text, it's always this obsession that there is a, there is a objective chain of logic of history, necessity, and we are merely instruments of historical necessity, this total self-instrumentalization. What happens now are then analysts perverts? Ah, the whole point is that for the pervert, the big other exists. He just fully knows what the big other wants. Uh, for example, in Stalinism, in the guise of this inexorable historical necessity, and we are just the instruments of it, no? But what happens if the big other doesn't exist, in the sense that if there is no consistent symbolic order? Then all this changes totally. You have here would be the patient, and the analyst stands precisely for, quite literally, for that rock stone that cannot be involved, included in, uh, into, into communication. Like, you know, as we usually put it in simplistic terms, the analyst just sits as an idiot and frust frustrates you, know? You like to engage him in some communication, no, he's literally uh, that, that access, what, that resists it. And that's then the structure of the analytic discourse, in the sense that this stands here for supposed knowledge. But it's more ambiguous in the sense of, you know, this is called transference, that you suppose that the analyst knows in advance the meaning of your uh, symptom. At the same time, it's more complex because you remember that this was the place of truth. So you can also say that an analyst also stands for that in the analytic discourse only, knowledge which, to put it in very simplistic terms, otherwise functions in this neutral way, in the fake way, for example, of the university discourse where you just make objective research, but only in the discourse of, only in the analytic link, knowledge arrives at the place of truth. And I think the way Lacan refers here to the notion of truth, it has something to do with the way uh, Alain Badiou does it. What do I mean by this? As we all know, in Psychoanalysis especially, we know how. Uh, knowledge does not necessarily involve truth, even if it is a true knowledge in the sense of uh, adequate knowledge. For example, we know, we, well, we all know, I hope they are so well known, Lacan's outrageous statement that even if, it's a little bit made showing, but nonetheless, even if a jealous husband claims that his wife is treating him, that she sleeps around with other men, even if they are all true, his jealousy is still pathological. 
so that you know, the, the factual truth can be, or adequacy, can be combined with untruth. Why? Let me give you a much more traumatic example, which makes the same point clearly. Let's take what Nazis claimed about the Jews. I think we have to go to the end here and claim, even if, okay, not all, I wouldn't go so far, but even if some of what they claimed was true, nonetheless, anti-Semitism was totally, totally a lie, a fake. Why? I think that that's my general point, that the moment you even think about uh, endorsing, accepting discussion at this level, like, for example, let's say, I don't know, I'm, an, I'm a Nazi, you are an honest liberal, and I say, Jews seduce our young girls, Jews exploit us, and I say this. You say, no, this is a lie. Then comes a naive university neutral idiot and says, oh, it's difficult. Let's take an objective look at it. You sell your soul to the devil in this. Because let's be clear, the result will be unambiguous. Yes, the Nazis exaggerated it, but not quite. Because wait a minute. Now let's say something horrible. Many Jews were also rich in Germany. So yes, they definitely exploited Germans. On the other hand, I hope so. It's normal. I think that some Jews definitely probably were seducing German girls. Why not? You know what I mean? Why is this false? Because the true... How uh, to put it? Uh, the Nazis here, even if it were to be true, but it wasn't, of course, they lied in the guise of truth. Because... The true question is not, is it true what they are claiming about the Jews? The true question is why, in order to sustain their, their politics, they need this fantasy of the Jew. Why they need this phantasmatic figure of the Jew? And incidentally, it's the same, I think, even today with Iraq. Here I got, here I think that many fake leftists fell into the trap of accepting the terms of the debate. And when Americans said we have to attack Iraq because it's a terrible regime and so on. No, the point is not to argue no, Saddam is good. Of course he's bad. But I think the paradox is that even if all the statements about Saddam were true, and incidentally, now you say something horrible, even I was slightly surprised. I thought they would find some weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> or at least, I mean, couldn't, uh, couldn't CIA or American army apply the old creative lesson of drug-busting American police? They don't give drugs, you plant them, then, my God, we live in the 21st century. No, no but, but my point is that you, you get my point. This is not the true question. The true question is not, is it true what, what they claim about Saddam? The true question is a totally different one, is what kind of new logic of hegemony, new world order is established in this way and so on and so on. I think that to accept, even to accept these terms and then to argue, you put yourself into a totally idiotic position, you know, when then you have to argue, oh, but it's not so bad, some people nonetheless supported Saddam. That's not our debate, my God. That's not the level. That's not, again, that's not the level of... Truth. So to put it in this old previous terms of enunciated enunciation, truth would be, uh, here we have knowledge at the level of truth, that is to say, at the level of your, which also uh, affects, affects your position of enunciation. So let me just briefly recapitulate and then I will go on. So if a political leader says, I'm your master, let my will be done, then this direct assertion of authority can first be hystericized when the subject starts to doubt his qualifications as a leader. Am I really a master? What is it in me that legitimizes me to act as a master? Then it can be masked authority in the guise of the university discourse. Like, I'm asking you to do this and in asking you, I only follow the insight into objective historical necessity. So I'm not your leader. I'm merely the servant for, of history, or it's only expertise, and so on. Or you can adopt the analyst's uh, position of uh, precisely occupying the very place of the impossibility of failure of the discourse. But now comes the second part, which I will try to make as short as possible. On the other hand, I must emphasize that here I totally agree with Derrida, who likes to draw attention to the predominance of this 
metaphysical, quantified, phallocentric notion of linear time, which you simply measure. With my talk, I want to contribute towards subverting this notion of time. <laughs> okay, let's go on. So, uh, how really does it work then, university discourse? Let me return to it now. Here, it did strike me uh, that how, what Agamben and others uh, develop as biopolitics is precisely this. This would be biopolitics. Expert knowledge, you are, this would be, here can nicely stand for pure life. Expert knowledge, pure life, and so on. But the truth of it would nonetheless be that this is still, that it doesn't really work at that. It is still sustained by a master signifier addressing the subject, subject, but more, in a more refined way, by the failure of this. My good friend Eric Center, in his wonderful book, My Own Private Germany, uh, developed this in a wonderful way in the figure who is maybe the founding figure of uh, our modern paranoia, Schreber, Freud's case, where, as you know, the problem of Schreber was precisely to assume the symbolic mandate. Master signifier which defines you. It's typical if you read Freud's analysis of Schreber or directly his memoirs that all the psychotic crises occurred precisely when he professionally succeeded immediately or was in a position like when he was nominated as a judge of crisis he couldn't assume it. And on the other hand, as you know, Schreber's father was the one, that is to say that crazy, even now they have in terms of this disciplinary procedure, he was the original Foucauldian pedagogical figure. So I think it's nonetheless crucial to emphasize the, uh, the, code, the codependence of this level. That you have the failure of the master discourse of traditional symbolic authority and then uh, biopolitics, uh, biopolitics uh, enters the two aspects together. However, and now comes the key message that I want to deliver. However, the object, pure life, of the discourse of university has two aspects which appear as belonging to two opposite ideological spaces. But I think precisely there are two aspects of the same, and this is crucial. First, we have, of course, a simple reduction of humans to bare life. Topic of homo sacer and so on. Or humans as disponible objects of the expert knowledge. Then we have a, a topic today which is apparently the opposite one. That is because when I say homo sacer and defend Agamben in front of my friends, I always get the same answer. But are you crazy? What about the opposite tendency, which is uh, not only did we ever talk so much about human rights, but isn't it that today we are so hypersensitive to vulnerability, harassment, and so on and so on? Okay, that's the other aspect. The respect for the vulnerable other brought to extreme. The attitude of narcissistic subjectivity, which experienced itself as vulnerable constantly exposed to a multitude of uh, potential harassments. And I think the extreme articulation of this attitude is Richard Rorty, who in his Contingency Irony Solidarity even defines in, this, defines in this way a human being. He says a human being is somebody who can be hurt. Now this is, I think, a pretty sad position. If we define as the ultimate dimension of a human being that which can suffer, that which can be hurt. Now, of course, again, you will say, but is there a stronger contrast than the one between the respect for the other's vulnerability and the reduction of the other to mere life, regulated by administrative knowledge? But what if, nonetheless, these two stances rely on the same root? What if they are two aspects of one and the same underlying attitude? That is to say, what if the, what is beneath both, both of them, the underlying thing, is precisely this failure of the master signifier, that is to say the refusal, the, sorry, the, the refusal, uh, the rejection of any uh, higher cause, as we put it, the notion that the ultimate goal of life is survival, is life itself. So you got it. I claim that this extreme, what they share in common, uh, homo sacer, 
reduction to their life. And this excessively sensitive late bourgeois narcissism. Oh my God, you laugh at me, hoo-hoo, I'm hurt. I look at a woman who I harassed her already. It's precisely the reduction of the other to this pure minimal life. That's their survivalism as the ultimate, uh, as the ultimate attitude. And I think that nowhere is the complicity of these two levels clearer than, now I say something horrible, than in the opposition to death penalty. Precisely because uh, that is the ultimate traumatic point of biopolitics, of the politics of the administration of life. Namely, I claim that, did you notice how this is what always bothers me? I'm not privately for death penalty for everyone. I think haha, that only those who deserve it should be. <laughs> but, uh, no, but seriously, what bothers me that the usual argumentation against death penalty, it doesn't work, it doesn't prevent, it's barbarian, and so on, and so on. And especially this pseudo-social, socialist reasoning, pseudo, which is, but people are victims of circumstances, and so on, and so on. It's precisely that you have this, this subjectivation reduction, reduction to, 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 to mere life. Precisely, you are reduced to object of biopolitics. And as such, of course, you can be the object of even cruel uh, administrative measures, but no death penalty. So I think the rise of what Agambe calls this homo sacra concentration camps, little machinery, and the rejection of death penalty, for me, are strictly, in this sense, strictly uh, correlative phenomena. Uh, even with regard to war, it's more ambiguous. Uh, the movie I really hate is one of them. It's Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Why? It appears a subversive, you know, horror of the war, but first, it's an abstract horror of the war. You know, the message is everywhere, blah, blah. What I find so... Uh, suspicious in it. I have this fantasy that this movie was ordered by Colin Powell to sustain his doctrine. Because, you know, Powell's doctrine is purely mechanized war with no, 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 with no, no death, no victims on our side. And this would be a perfect counterpoint to this saving private Ryan attitude. Now we came to, to the, what I see as the central feature of this university discourse. Uh, the central paradox of, as it were, condensing the opposite. Because I think in this university discourse, opposites coincide. In what sense? In the traditional master discourse, you have this clear contrast in the sense of this is permitted, this is not permitted, prohibition uh, contains you, and so on, and so on. But what we get in today's so-called permissive society of control is, I claim, uh, that it's no longer transgression, reaction, and so on. It is as if, how to put it, the same product tries to be already its counter-agent. What do I mean by this? For example, you know that on today's market you find a whole series of products deprived of their malignant property. Coffee without caffeine, cream without fat, beer without alcohol, and I think the list goes on. We have virtual sex, which is precisely sex without sex. We get Colin Powell doctrine, which is precisely war without warfare, without that on our side, of course. And I claim incidentally that the same goes for multiculturalism. It's the respect of the other without the real other. No, because, you know, in multiculturalism, the other is this sublime other, folkloric dances, and so on, all that holistic approach, and so on, and so on. So let me go on. So I think that uh, this is the paradox of what, following Nietzsche, we could designate as today's hedonistic, you know, Nietzsche's term, last man. Everything is permitted, you can enjoy everything, but it has to be deprived of its substance, which makes it dangerous. Coffee, yes, without coffee. I mean, uh, alcohol, uh, beer, yes, without alcohol. Meat, yet, yes, without fat, and so on, and so on. Here, I don't have time to go with, we could elaborate this Dosto Lacan's paradoxes of Lacan's paraphrase of Dostoevsky, which are, if God doesn't exist, everything is. 
prohibit that. That's for me the paradox of today's permissivity. Yes, God is dead, we live in a permissive universe. That is to say, you should strive for pleasures and happiness. But, now comes the trick, in order to really enjoy a full life of happiness, you should avoid dangerous excess, not harass others, take care of your health, and so on and so on. So, precisely when you want to have a life of full pleasure, dedicated just to your happiness, you end up in a totally regulated Society. I think that there never was a society which, at the level of what Foucault referred to as micro practice, was as regulated as it is as is today's society. And the opposite is also true, namely uh, the other version, which is if against Dostoevsky, if there is God, everything is permitted. But it's the whole point of so-called fundamentalism. We act directly on behalf of God, necessity, whatever. So, who are you to, you know, it's permitted. So, let's go on. So, today's hedonism combines pleasure with constraint. But not, that's now crucial, in a way which is totally opposite to this old, antique version of proper measure. Because this was, to cut it short, the pre-Kantian ethics. No, proper measure. Sex, yes, but not too much. Eat, but yes. No, today it's not the right measure between pleasure and constraint and so on. It is that, uh, it is a kind of a more direct uh, coincidence of the opposites. Where, again, um, a thing, it's already, it's, it's, its own remedy, its own counteraction. The vulgar example is the one that I encountered in California three years ago, uh, chocolate laxative.